All right, well, uh, there is a scene from the movie Spider-Man. I don't know which Spider-Man, there's like a million of them. But one of the Spider-Man movies where uh, there's the, the Green Goblin uh, puts Spider-Man in this uh, unbelievably difficult ethical dilemma. Uh, he's on top of the Queensboro Bridge in New York City and he's got Spider-Man's girlfriend, Mary Jane, in one hand and he's cut the cable car to this tram that takes passengers over the Queensboro Bridge, and he's holding the cable in the other hand. And so uh, he's uh, got Spider-Man there on the scene, and he says to Spider-Man, this is why only fools are heroes, because you never know when some lunatic is gonna come along with a sadistic choice. Let the woman you love die or suffer the little children. Make your choice, Spider-Man, and see how a hero is rewarded. And then he drops both of them at the same time, and Spider-Man is put in this unbelievable ethical uh, situation. And so uh, because he's a superhero, Spider-Man was able to save both. Uh, that's the, the magic of movies. But I do note that he saved his girlfriend, Mary Jane, first, and then saved the tram full of children. Uh, but what would you have done in that situation if you really could only save one? You got a, your girlfriend, this person who you love, and you have a tram full of kids, and you can only save one. That's an impossible ethical dilemma, isn't it? Well, I don't think that either of Spider-Man's choices were necessarily sinful in that situation, but imagine you're a Jewish sympathizer during uh, Hitler's uh, Nazi regime, and SS officers knock on your door, and they're looking for tips about where they can find uh, a Jewish family that's hiding, and it turns out that you're the one who actually happens to be hiding this Jewish family in your basement. And so what do you do? Uh, lying is a sin, right? And we certainly don't want to sin. But if you don't lie, they're going to take you and they're going to take this Jewish family to a concentration camp where more than likely you're going to die. Well, this seems like an easy decision, right? You lie. That's what you would do in that situation. But uh, there's a famous theologian and ethicist that many of you have probably heard of by the name of Wayne Grudem who says that it's never okay to lie. Like even in this situation, you don't lie. You just tell the truth and you allow God to handle all of those circumstances. Uh, so that's one way to look at it. He would say there, that's not an ethical dilemma at all. If you disagree with that, it's probably because you think that there are degrees of evil, right? And so it's easier, it's better to commit the lesser sin of lying to prevent the greater sin of having innocent people be killed. But it's an ethical dilemma. Now, in Ezra chapter 10, Ezra faces his own ethical dilemma. Uh, because he's going to be faced with a very difficult situation here. So before we talk about it, let's just remember where we've been so far in the book of Ezra. Uh, chapters 1 and 2, we talked about the return of the exiles from Babylon. And then in chapter 3, there was the rebuilding of the temple and the altar. But then as soon as they met resistance, Ezra chapter 4, they put aside the work. They went home to their own houses and lived in comfort for a bunch of years. Uh, and then they repented of that sin, the, the sin of lethargy and comfort, and began to rebuild the temple again, which they completed in 515 BC. Then there's a gap of time between Ezra chapter 6 and Ezra chapter 7. Ezra chapter 7 is 458 BC now. Ezra returns with a second wave of exiles, and we learn about his reverence for the Lord. He, he loved the Lord, he studied the Word, he practiced the Word, he taught the Word, and so we see that he was very reverent toward the Lord. But as soon as he gets back to Israel, he understands that there is this very difficult problem because many of the priests, many of the Levites had intermarried with the pagan women of the land. 
And so we called that message relapse. They had relapsed into their old sins. And so Ezra confessed the sin of the nation, and he relied on God's mercy and his grace to prevail. And so these are all proper responses to sin. But true repentance goes even one step further, because repentance means not only to agree with God that what he says is true, and Next, though, you have to take the step further to correct the sinful behavior, turn away from it, uh, take righteous action to cut this sin out of our lives. So this is what Ezra 10 documents. He documents not only Ezra's, but Israel's response to this sin of intermarrying with the pagan uh, people of the land. And so that's why I'm calling this message reform, because that's what Ezra did. He reformed the behavior and the practices of the people of the land. Well, the word reform means to correct or change either belief or behavior to cause it to be better. And so that's what Ezra needed to do here. And reform is always hard, right? Because typically we, we, we've fallen into a sinful behavior. We usually don't fall into better behaviors. We fall into worse behaviors, and those things need to be fixed, right? And so that's what Ezra does. And, and because we have a sin nature, and because we sin, and then our sins become habits over time, these are the things that need to be reformed. And so uh, Ezra, we have to recognize that he's in a tough spot here. The, these, these Levites, these priests, the leaders of the people had intermarried with the pagan women, and so he's got to deal with this. Uh, and on the one hand, uh, you think about how God talked to them about who they should marry. Uh, God specifically says uh, that they are prohibited from intermarrying with the pagans. In, in Deuteronomy 7, he says, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. So pretty clear, right, about how God feels about them intermarrying with the pagans. But then God also hates divorce, right? Malachi, who was a prophet, a contemporary of Ezra, was prophesying for God against the Jews because they had dealt treacherously with their wives. They were taking other wives, second wives, and then they were divorcing their first wives, their Jewish wives, for no reason. And so in Malachi chapter 2, God says, I hate divorce. So again, pretty clear, right? You can't be much clearer. He was crystal clear about that. So uh, what's Ezra to do? He's got a, a very difficult situation, this ethical dilemma of having these pagans who intermarried uh, with, the, with, the Jews of the, uh, with the Jews, and then he's got the God hating divorce. So what do you do? Well, I think what we learn here is that in most situations, by knowing the word of the Lord and applying the word of the Lord properly, uh, we can resolve a lot of ethical dilemmas, maybe not all, but uh, this one I think Ezra resolved right because he knew the word of the Lord, he knew how to apply it, and he was able to resolve this. And I think reform happens when we know the word of the Lord, we know how to apply it, and then we can learn how to repent and reform our behavior. So let's talk about how Ezra initiates this reform among the people of God. And so the first thing we see is that Shechaniah uh, proposed this reform. So while Ezra was praying and making confession, weeping and prostrating himself before the house of God, a very large assembly, men, women, and children, gathered to him from Israel. For the people wept bitterly. Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. 
Yet now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. So now let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God. And let it be done according to the Lord. Arise, for this matter is your responsibility, but we will be with you. Be courageous and act. Well, last week we talked about the effect that bad leaders can have on a group of people, right? Uh, the priests and the Levites were the leaders of the people, and so they uh, rushed headlong into intermarriage with uh, the pagan women, and what happened? Well, the regular people followed right after them, right into uh, these, this intermarriage, and then they adopted their heinous, uh, detestable practices. They followed the priests and Levites' examples. But now, in the first few verses here of Ezra chapter 10, we see that good leadership can have the opposite effect. Good leadership can lead people into proper behavior. So Ezra is the leader of this group of returning exiles, and he comes back to the land, uh, and he's a priest, he's a scribe, he's well-known, well-versed in the scriptures. He's a serious man of God. And when he prayed and wept and confessed and prostrated himself on the ground uh, because of the Lord or before the Lord, the people followed his example too. They gathered to him. They wept bitterly as well. And so this tells us something about Ezra's leadership style uh, that I think we can learn something from. He didn't go right to the people and, and, and beat up on them and call them uh, horrible sinners and, and pronounce curses on them. He went to God first and he prayed and confessed to God. And he modeled the confession and the repentance that the people of the land needed to follow. And so uh, these Israelites, by seeing this man of God, by, by watching uh, what he did, even though Ezra himself was not guilty of the sin, he was more upset about this than anybody. And so they were drawn to him. His godliness, his piety was attractive to them. And he didn't even have to say a single word to them. They just started to gather around him, weeping with him, confessing their sin with him. And so it shows that there's more than one way to confront sin. We, we can use words, and Ezra will do that later on in the chapter. But here, uh, he shows it by the way he lives his life. Pure and godly living can have an effect on the people around you too. And so Ezra's response drew the people, uh, the Israelites, to him. And that's the power of godly leadership. Well, we meet this man, Shechaniah. He's the son of, of another man, uh, Jehiel, uh, one of the sons of Elam. And so we get this genealogy. That'll be important in a little bit. He approached Ezra with the solution to the problem. Uh, and he, too, with Ezra, acknowledged the sin of the people. Uh, and even though we, we want to notice here that, that Shechaniah himself was probably not guilty of the sin himself, because if you read through this uh, list of names in verses 18 to 44, this is the list of the people who are guilty of the sin. And in verse 26, particularly, it says, and the sons of Elam and Shechaniah is not mentioned among those sons. There are other sons mentioned, Madaniah, Zechariah, Jehiel, Abdi, Jeremoth, and Elijah, but no Shechaniah. So Shechaniah was probably not guilty of the sin. And so we see Shechaniah finds himself in a difficult ethical situation, right? He knows what's right and what's wrong. They have married with the pagans. And yet, he's got his family welfare, on the other hand, that he probably is somewhat concerned about as well. And so he's in a tough spot. He's in an ethical dilemma. He could have chosen to ignore the sin for the sake of his family, or he could continue uh, to call out the sin and agree with Ezra and do what's right. And so sometimes it's hard to do the right thing, but uh, if we're going to... Follow the word of the Lord. We have to do the right thing, even when it's difficult. 
So Shechaniah proposes the solution, meaning to put these wives away. Uh, and it shows the way he talks about it in verse 2. It's, it shows that he believes in a God of grace and in a God of mercy. And even more importantly, despite Israel's sin, he says there is still hope for Israel. And that shows uh, that, that he was a godly man, a man who understood a God, our God of grace. And the second thing we see is that he, he understood what needed to be done, but he also was not afraid to take the hard road uh, when presented with an ethical dilemma. Sometimes the hard road uh, is the one we have to take uh, because that's the right road. So uh, Shechaniah showed true courage here. Uh, this scene reminds me of the movie of Braveheart. I don't know how many of you have seen Braveheart, where William Wallace is talking to this man called Robert the Bruce. Uh, and uh, Robert the Bruce is kind of a wishy-washy kind of leader, uh, but William Wallace certainly is not. He's not a wishy-washy leader. He's trying to get Robert the Bruce to lead these men uh, to revolt against England and claim the freedom that is rightfully the Scots. And he says to, to uh, Robert the Bruce, men don't follow titles. They follow courage. If you would just lead them to freedom, they would follow you, and so would I. And that's, that just reminds me of this scene, because Shechaniah knows he doesn't have the power uh, that Ezra does. Ezra's got the power uh, because Artaxerxes gave him the power. And, and if, if, if Ezra will lead these people, they will follow you. And that's what Shechaniah is encouraging Ezra to do. It's Ezra's responsibility to lead. Now, we've talked about a few things, but we haven't talked about the actual solution to the problem that has been proposed here. So what about this problem? Uh, what about this solution that Shechaniah has proposed? He says, let's make a covenant with our God that we will put away these wives and children. So what's he talking about? This is forced divorce, forced divorce, and you send your wives and your children away for everyone who married a pagan wife. Now, if we were to count the number of people who were affected by this in verses 8 to, to 18 to 44, it's 111, give or take, depending on how you count their name or two. I'm going to use the, the number 111. Many of those marriages produced children. And so uh, what we'll see, and I'll argue a bit later, is that I think this is only a partial list. I think the, the problem was more widespread than this, but we'll talk about that in a little bit. But God hates divorce because it tears families apart. It rips families apart, separates husbands from wives, husbands from children. Uh, and that's something that God certainly hates. That's why he said in Malachi 2, I hate divorce. Uh, and in that culture particularly, women and children were generally left unprotected. And so God doesn't want that either. Uh, so how could this solution of Shechaniah's be a good solution, given what, uh, what, what the solution is to force all these divorces? Well, it isn't a good solution, but it's probably the best solution in light of everything else that had happened, because the problem is that the Jews have intermarried with the pagans. It's a rampant uh, practice, and these foreign women were committed to foreign gods, and that is going to be a problem, because... As we've said, the Jews were not allowed to intermarry with the pagans. Uh, and so you can marry a foreigner. That's not the problem. It's the God that's the problem. So Ruth, for example, she was a Moabite woman, right? But she was committed to Israel's God. So Boaz could marry her. The same thing with Rahab. They're both in Jesus' line of ancestry because they were committed to Israel's God. But Solomon, on the other hand, took pagan wives, and what happened? They led him away from God, just like uh, the word predicted, uh, which led to uh, uh, Israel being split in half, civil war among Israel, uh, and so terrible results. So again, the issue is not race, it's faith. Uh, who is your God? That's the question. 
So marriage to these pagan women would lead the people and their children astray from God. So Ezra thought it was better to have these marriages end in divorce than it would be to allow them to continue uh, and to continue to dilute Israel's bloodline and again have wide numbers of people falling into the practice of pagan idolatry. So that's Ezra's thinking. But was he right? Well, this seems to be a case where you have to choose the lesser of two evils, right? And that's because of the sin of the people. It's the sin of the people that created the evils, and now we have to choose between the two. But there are no good options here. Forcing 111 divorces, well, that's not a good solution, right? It's not a good situation. But these marriages would produce innumerable offspring over the generations that would take Israel far away from the God of Israel. Uh, and, and Ezra, in his estimation, that solution is worse. God surely hates divorce. We know that. He said so himself, but we've already talked about that. But he also hates, uh, inter, or he hates intermarrying. He hates divorce. But, but so what does he do here? Um, we have to think about the Old Testament history about divorce. God certainly did not want divorce. He said, let the two be joined together, and what God has joined, let no man separate. But there are places in the Old Testament where God acknowledges divorce because of the sin of the people, because of the hardness of their hearts, but he placed conditions on it in order to protect the woman. And in Matthew 19, uh, God said, or Jesus says, uh, God allowed divorce as a matter of concession for you because of your hardness of hearts, but it was never intended to be that way. So God doesn't like divorce. He hates divorce, but he does allow it as a matter of concession under very limited circumstances. But on the other hand, God never makes a concession for idolatry. Never. There's no place in the Bible where God ever says, oh yeah, I'd be happy to share my throne with your carved idol or with your golden calf. God doesn't think that way. God is on the throne alone. He will not share his throne. So idolatry then, by that line of thinking, is worse than divorce. And we should also note that the Bible here or anywhere else never even hints that Ezra made the wrong decision here. But what about all those women and children who got sent away? What about those? Well, it's, it's a tragic result without a doubt. Now, uh, <clears throat> I read a whole bunch of commentaries on this, and I agree with the commentators who say that more than likely these pagan women were given the opportunity to convert to Christianity before they got sent away. And I think that's what's happening in these investigations of the marriages that follow that take uh, up to three months to investigate these marriages. Uh, if they convert, uh, then they can stay married. But if they won't, then they have to be sent away. And those marriages ended in divorce. So that's why I think there's only 111 marriages mentioned here. Uh, this was a widespread problem, seemingly more than just 111 marriages. Uh, but I think many of the pagan women did convert and were found to be true conversions. For the marriages that did end, these 111 or so, uh, although the text doesn't say it, many of the commentators say that according to the dowry laws of the time, they would have had to have been paid appropriate sums before they got sent away, so they would not have been left entirely helpless. But still, it's an awful situation. And as I've said several times in this series, sin has consequences. We can choose the sin, but we don't always get to choose the consequences. And so these men sinned by, by marrying these pagan women, and that was their sinful choice. But the, 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 the consequences that they couldn't necessarily foresee was that Ezra was going to come along with the word of the Lord and say, these marriages are over. They cannot stand. And so uh, this would result in the abandonment of these wives and these children. And they would also have to live with the stigma of being divorced, which was a much bigger deal then than it is today. By the way, 
women got custody of the children in that culture, uh, which, you know, that's a good thing and a bad thing, I guess. Uh, mostly bad uh, for the men because they're trying to raise up heirs. Mostly bad for the women because now this is another mouth they have to feed as they're going, uh, you know, about their lives now looking for another husband. It's good if you want to have custody of your children if, and if you love your child, that's great. If you see him as another mouth to feed, well, then it's not so good. Uh, so I guess it depends on your perspective. Uh, but yeah, for these women, that, that's not an easy situation because they would have to go, you know, not only themselves, but have another mouth with them. Uh, so the, the, I guess the point of it all is that uh, we have the choice to sin, but once we let the sin out of the bottle, I mean, there's no telling where it's going to go. Uh, and so we don't get to control what happens, who might be affected. So it shouldn't surprise us that our sin hurts us, but it also hurts the people we love too, uh, innocent people who didn't commit the sin like their children who were not the sinners themselves, they were the offspring of the sin. Uh, so it hurts a lot of people and surely God is grieved by their sin as well. So this is the solution that Ezra came up with. So now let's see how Shechaniah impl or Ezra implemented Shechaniah's proposal, verses 5 to 8. Then Ezra rose and made the leading priests, the Levites, and all Israel take oath that they would do according to this proposal. So they took the oath. Then Ezra rose from before the house of God and went into the chamber of Jehoanan, the son of Eliashib. Although he went there, he did not eat bread nor drink water, for he was mourning over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. And they made a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem, and that whoever would not come within three days, according to the counsel of the leaders and the elders, all his possessions should be forfeited, and he himself excluded from the assembly of the exiles. So Ezra makes all the people in Jerusalem take an oath uh, that they would put their pagan wives away. Uh, and then Ezra goes and he prays in private. He mourns, he fasts over the unfaithfulness of the exile. So it's clear that, that Ezra is not you know, doing this for uh, accolades from the people. He's not some fake pious guy uh, to be seen. Uh, he's gone into a private place to mourn and to fast. And then they send a proclamation out to all the surrounding area of Judah. Uh, that might have included up to 40 miles in any given direction that this proclamation has to go out. And they have three days to get to Jerusalem to assemble uh, for this uh, convocation that they're about to have to address the problem. Now, the penalty for failure to appear was great. Uh, Ezra was given immense power by Artaxerxes. Uh, he, Artaxerxes said, you enforce the laws of your God, enforce our laws as well, even up to and including the death penalty if people would not uh, obey the law. So Ezra certainly had the power to confiscate, confiscate their possessions, to kick them out of temple worship. And so these people would not have had a choice. They would have had to come uh, and face the charges. And so they do that, and three days later they gather, and Ezra now addresses the people, verses 9 to 15. So all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. It was the ninth month on the 20th of the month, and all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and the heavy rain. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have been unfaithful and have married foreign wives, adding to the guilt of Israel. Now, therefore, make confession to the Lord of your fathers and do his will and separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly applied, replied with a loud voice, that's right. As you said, so it is our duty to do. But there are many people. It is the rainy season and we are not able to stand in the open. 
nor can the task be done in one or two days, for we have transgressed greatly in this matter. Let our leaders represent the whole assembly and let all those in our cities who have married foreign, pagan, foreign wives come at the appointed times together with the elders and the judges of each city until the fierce anger of our God on account of, our, of this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, the son of Asahel, and Jahazia, ah, son of Tikva, opposed to this with Meshullam, Shabbatai, and, Le and the Levites supporting them. I got so far and blew it at the last name. So sad. Well, uh, it's about December 19th, 458, on our calendars. That's the date of this. Uh, and it's the middle of the rainy season in Israel. And so the people are out there standing in the rain, waiting to get lectured by Ezra about their sin. Uh, so what a miserable day it must have been for them to be spiritually convicted of this sin of intermarrying with the pagans after a long journey from wherever they had come from. Uh, they got to get convicted of their sin while the rain is pouring on them. I mean, that's a real bad day. Uh, earlier, Ezra confronted them by his conduct, right? Because of his piety, because of his fair, uh, prayer, fasting, and and weeping and mourning, they were drawn to him. But now Ezra confronts them with his words. He identified their sin and he laid out, commanded the remedy. They had to confess their sin. They had to put away their foreign wives. And so Ezra said in doing so, they would be doing God's will, which is God's will we talked about in Deuteronomy, that they should not intermarry. So this is more proof that uh, the solution that Ezra implemented was right and in accordance with God's word. So the people, they agreed to do it, and I believe that they were truly repentant, and they, they mourned their sin. Uh, they said, it is right, you are right, it is our duty to do it. But there were some logistical problems. I mean, they're standing out here in the rain, they live 30, 40 miles away, their wives, their families are there, uh, so how do, we, how do we handle this logistical problem? Well, we don't really know how many men and women exactly were involved here. Uh, but the sin seemed rampant, and as I said, that's why most commentators think it's probably more than, a, that, or that 111 is only a partial list. When we think about it, uh, when we, if we counted up the returning exiles from, uh, from Zerubbabel's return, uh, and then considered that they had offspring during the, the couple generations, there's probably population in Israel exceeding maybe 50,000 at this time. But there are only 111 people who end up getting divorced here. So uh, when we think about it that way, I think that's why this 111 people from 18, verses 18 to 44 is only a partial list. I think it's those people who won't convert to Judaism who get mentioned here. And, and that makes more sense to me, considering the size of the population, 50,000 or so, the size of the scandal, which seems to be an immense widespread scandal, but yet the very little, uh, relatively speaking, number of divorces that actually happened. So those who Ezra summoned to Jerusalem, they propose an administrative solution uh, to this problem. They should appoint leaders in all the various cities from where these people have come from, and then let those leaders hear the cases, investigate the matters, and make a decision. That way, uh, all the people won't have to travel to Israel, and Ezra won't have to, or to Jerusalem, and Ezra won't have to preside over every single case. We can appoint leaders who would do that to see if the pagan women would convert and if those conversions were real. So it was a good plan uh, intended to effectively deal with their sin. Uh, and they were fully behind Ezra's reformation, except for four people who opposed. Now, they may have opposed because they didn't, they, they didn't want to have any delay at all. They might have wanted to have immediate justice, or it may be that they didn't want to deal with the sin at all, and I think the language of the text seems to indicate that the latter is probably the case. They didn't want to deal with their sin at all. 
And the thing is, uh, some people just don't want to repent of their sin, right? Uh, some people like their sin too much. Uh, they cherish their sin more than they cherish God. And we will encounter that uh, as we deal with people and sin. And sometimes we may even find it in ourselves. And so we need to examine ourselves for those attitudes. But over that little bit of opposition, Ezra implemented their suggestion in verses 16 and 17. Uh, but the exiles did so. And Ezra the priest selected men who were heads of the father's households for each of their father's households, all of them by name. So they convened on the first day of the 10th month to investigate the matter. They finished investigating all the men who had married foreign wives by the first day of the first month. So it took about 11 days to get these investigations up and running. Remember before it said the, the 20th day of the ninth month. Now we're at the, the first day of the 10th month. So about 11 days. And that time was probably spent appointing various leaders in the various towns and uh, giving them uh, criteria by which to judge. Uh, and so they were ready to hear the cases after 11 days. And then it took a full three months for them to investigate all of these marriages. Again, that's why I think it had to be more than 111. Uh, verses 18 to 44, as we've talked about, lists the offenders. And I think it's probably just the, those who would not convert, who had their marriages dissolved because they wouldn't convert. So that's what we see here. Ezra implements this solution. The, the marriages are investigated, and 111 of them are found to have to be dissolved. Now, I'm not going to read all this list of names in verses 18 to 44, but I do want us to notice uh, Ezra 10:18 because it's important. Among the sons of the priests who had married foreign wives were found the sons of Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and his brothers, Messiah, Eleazar, Jarib, and Jedaliah. So you remember who Jeshua is, right? Jeshua came back to uh, Israel with the first wave of exiles with Zerubbabel. We learned that in chapter 1. And he was the high priest, the son of uh, Josadak. And what we learn is that only a gen in, in only a generation or two, uh, even his sons uh, were guilty of the practice of marrying uh, foreign women. So it reminds us two things. One, Certainly, as the high priest, I would assume that Jeshua taught his children well. And it's our obligation as parents and grandparents to treat or teach our children well. We should never neglect that responsibility. But it's also a reminder that uh, we're all sinners, right? And, and we can't stop our children from sinning. They're going to make their own choices just like we make our own choices. And so uh, we're each responsible for our own selves to uh, make decisions that will follow the Lord. So we'll skip over the long list of names, but I want to finish with Ezra uh, chapter 10, verse 44, the last verse of the book. All these had married foreign wives, and some of them had wives by whom they married, uh, or by whom they had children. So the book does not end on a note of hope, right? There's not a lot of hope here. Uh, but it does end by reinforcing that there are consequences of sin and yet, the grace of God is always there at the same time. They deserve judgment, but by implementing this uh, solution that Ezra devised, uh, they were going to experience uh, not God's judgment. He was going to allow them to stay in the land and not go back into captivity. So we see that the, the consequences of sin are very painful, but we serve a very gracious God. And so in the end, Ezra, in his lifetime, uh, during the book of Ezra, he enacted much-needed reform uh, during uh, this time. Uh, and he also uh, saved God's covenant people from falling into the hands of God's judgment and even, even further discipline. He reestablished Israel in the land 
uh, again in 458 BC, and he taught people proper worship and reverence for God. So, I mean, that's a successful life by any measure, right? Even though the book doesn't uh, sound like it ends on a very optimistic, positive note, that's a very a good life. Now, sadly, when we come to the book of Nehemiah in uh, the new year after the Christmas uh, season, we're going to see them fall right back into the same sin again in only another generation. So it just shows us that if we are not vigilant against our sin, it has a way of knocking at our door, creeping right back into our lives again. We have to be vigilant against sin. So uh, let's put that off for the time, and we'll think about some applications that we can take from today and from the entire book of Ezra. And the first one is that the severity of our sin shows us our need for a savior. The Israelites were in Babylon to begin with because of their sin. And God is so serious about their sin and its consequences that he allowed the Babylonians to burn down their precious temple and his holy city. God allowed Babylon to do that. He even prophesied that that was going to happen uh, through the prophets. He warned Israel several times that they needed to repent. And when they wouldn't, God allowed that to happen. He loved the people. He hated their sin and idolatry. And so he was willing to sacrifice the temple and the building so he could try to get the people to repent. And even after the exile, the people still couldn't stop sinning. They intermarry with these pagan women, and Ezra had to solve that problem by dissolving these marriages. And still that doesn't stop the people from sinning. Like I said, it's going to happen again in Nehemiah. It continues right to this day, right? Sin is still a problem today because of our sinful nature. And the only thing that can help us to live holy lives is the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives because only God can perform real heart change. And that's why we need Jesus. When we receive Jesus as our Savior, when we believe that he died for our sins and rose from the dead, God gives us the Holy Spirit to live in us. And faith in Jesus and the presence of the Holy Spirit makes us new creations so that we can live lives that are holy and pleasing to God. And God wants this so much for us that he was willing to sacrifice not only the temple, but his own son so that we could have this kind of holiness. It's our sin that put Jesus on the cross. And God's incredible gift to us is salvation if we will only believe. And so the severity of our sin shows us our need for a savior. Secondly, reformation and repentance is our work. Uh, it's the work of people who recognize that, that what's going on is wrong, both in ourselves and in society. And we see the need for change and, and change that will make things better. Uh, we've been talking a lot in this series about the, the parallels between Ezra's world and our world and about the mess our country is in because we have lost our first love. We have left God. And so Ezra reformed the behavior of the people. And so his leadership caused the people to want to repent and reform. And so we're in a similar situation. We don't have the power that Ezra had, the power of the death penalty uh, to wield a sword like that, but we can reform ourselves. We can repent. And maybe by the way we live, we will cause other people to repent and reform as well. Because we need to look different from the unbelieving world, right? We should, our Christians should be known by our love. We should be known by the way we live our lives. And so if there's sin in our lives, we need to be able to address that. Are we prepared to do what Ezra did and just cut it out of our lives completely, uh, identify sin, confess it, repent of it, turn away from it, put it out of our lives? It's hard to do, uh, but that's what we have to do if we want reform as the Holy Spirit reveals the sin in our lives. So that's how we show God that we're, about, we're as serious about sin as he is. 
So reformation and repentance is our work, but revival is God's work. It begins with a prompting by the Holy Spirit. Uh, He awakens us in a new way, and we respond uh, in such a way that we worship him, rededicate ourselves to him. And if God does this in enough people, it's going to catch fire. It's going to spread from person to person to person. And and who knows, in not very long, uh, we might have uh, another great awakening on our hands and, and how amazing that would be. And we can pray for this, but God has to do this work. And God can do it. Uh, We need to believe that. We need to believe that God can do it. God is sovereign over rulers of the world. He took Cyrus and Artaxerxes and he bent their will to make them release uh, these uh, Israelite uh, captives. Uh, And it happened. And so there is no one who is beyond God's reach. And I think that the more that we're in the business of reformation, the more God is in the business of revival. It comes from Deuteronomy. Blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. And so... On a personal level, we need to obey the Lord's commands, but we need to also exert whatever influence we can uh, to bring people to Christ and lead holy lives. And one way we can do that is by continuing to pray. God can do anything he wants, and Ezra proves to us over and over again that God will forgive repentant, sinful people who are confessing their sin and asking for forgiveness. So I think our prayer ought to be the prayer of Shechaniah in Ezra chapter 10 verse 2 he says we have been unfaithful to god and yet there is still hope for us in spite of this that's the gracious god we serve the god of mercy the god of love who will judge if he has to uh, but if we will repent and reform uh, he's a god who is always willing to receive us back and he is a god who's worthy of our worship and obedience amen brothers and sisters Lord God, we thank you for the book of Ezra and for the many lessons that we've learned, Lord, and for what reform, repentance uh, looks like. Lord, help us to be the agents that are required to, to live our lives in a way that's holy and pleasing to God and to speak the word so that people will understand the gospel and know what it is that they need to be saved. And Lord, they'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. And Lord, people who are filled with the Holy Spirit change and they effectuate change, Lord, and that's what we need in this country so desperately. Lord, we pray for it. We ask for revival. We pray that you make it happen one person at a time. We ask in Jesus' holy name. Amen.